Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Our speaker this evening received a Ph.D. in philosophy from the Catholic University of America in 1997, Dr. John Cutterback writes and lectures on various topics, including virtue, culture, natural law, contemplation, and friendship. A third order lay Dominican, he currently teaches in the philosophy department at Christendom College, and uh, his classes are highly sought after. His book, True Friendship, Where Virtue Becomes Happiness, was republished in 2010. Dr. John Cutterback also writes for his blog titled Bacon from Acorns, in which he publishes his own reflections on philosophy and the household. Dr. Cutterback is an avid gardener and hunter, and he lives with his wife and six children. It's still six, right? It, you never know in Front Royal. Uh, six children in the Shenandoah Valley. He is a frequent speaker for the ICC, as well as one of our Magdala Apostolate professors. So please join me in welcoming back to the Institute, Dr. John Cutterback. Thank you, Danny. Appreciate it. Thank you. Well, good evening, everybody. Great, uh, great to be here with you. I, as I uh, parked the car and I and I was walking in, I bumped into an old friend who was uh, pushing his baby in a stroller. And, um, well, at first I thought he might be coming to the lecture. I should have known better, um, <laughs> seeing as he's an old friend of mine. And um, so he was actually on the way to adoration. He said, I'm sorry I can't make it to the lecture tonight, but uh, don't worry, I'll just watch it on my smartphone. <laughs> oh. So there we have it. Um, uh, what we have before us tonight is a, a, a very tricky topic, and uh, there are no easy solutions to the problem uh, that we have. But let us, as, as Father suggested, uh, let us reflect, let us examine together and uh, see what we might uh, come up with. I, I do begin here with an assumption, and that assumption is that we all realize that we have a problem. I cannot, as part of the lecture here this evening, I wouldn't be able to sufficiently address this very complicated problem. But one thing for sure I can't do is try to convince somebody that we have a problem if you don't fundamentally already see that. All right, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to fundamentally assume that we have a problem. But nonetheless, um, I do want to help in my opening section here to focus a little bit on understanding a little better what that problem is. So I'm going to try to focus our, our attention in seeing several different aspects of what this problem is. Then after that, I'm going to go and I'm going to turn to Pope Francis and look at some things that he has written 
and he's used some other great authors, but try to give a little bit of a philosophical analysis, more going to the root of the problem, although even there it's, it's complicated, and we won't be able to do that in a comprehensive way. And then finally turn and offer a few practical suggestions for what we might do. So again, an opening look at kind of giving a description of the problem and some key effects of it, to make a little bit of a philosophical analysis of the problem, and then make some suggestions as to practically what we might do. Most everybody, I think, can feel that something is wrong. Children don't know how to interact with adults or with one another. They don't know how and aren't interested often to play old-fashioned games, the normal games that we've always associated with childhood. Their imaginations tend to be weak and are filled, by and large, with either banal or evil images. They need to be constantly, or almost constantly, entertained. And astoundingly, they're still, usually, bored. Their manners, pardon me for saying it, by and large, are deplorable. Simply deplorable. They're lonely, they're depressed, and very often unhappy. They're not at home in their own skin. They're often not at home in their own home. And it's not just the young people. We adults are too busy. But at the same time, we know we waste much too much time. We feel fundamentally disconnected in the midst of unprecedented connection. Our own manners, to be frank, are slipping. We interrupt our own conversations because of a text or a phone call regularly. Contexts that used to be sacred times of presence are no longer. Our own meal times are suffering. There are fewer people, more technology, less presence at our mealtimes. We feel that we have to be always on call, and we're tired of it. But at the same time, we're addicted to stimulation, be it by digital communication or the ever-present and almost always vapid news feeds, or by our favorite television shows, YouTube videos, or movies, or sports events, that we can now watch almost at will, any time. And it's cumulative. Emptiness, absence, separation. On the other hand, how many hours in a day do we simply hear the sounds of nature? Or for that matter, the sounds of human voices, of people who are bodily present, in an unhurried, peaceful context. How much, how often in a day do we hear such things? And whose fault is all this? Is the world making us do this and be this way? 
Well, let's be fair to ourselves. The world certainly is encouraging us and at times downright pressuring us to have these problems of which we just spoke. But I insist we can still be masters of our time, of our lives, and our homes. We must be. There is much at stake. The time is now. Our very humanity, I suggest, is at stake. Do I exaggerate? Honestly, in my opinion, part of the problem is too many people would accuse what I've just said as being an exaggeration. That's part of the complexity of this problem. Loud voices will insist that this really isn't that big a problem. All we have to do is tinker with the situation or even come up with new technologies to help us control the old ones. Let me be clear. Of course, the deepest root of this problem and all the problems of which, of which we just spoke is spiritual. Technology itself is not the main problem. But, but, technology is integral to the whole situation that I just painted. Technology is not accidental to the whole situation that I just painted. Technology is a serious, indeed major, contributing cause to everything that I just mentioned. We need to realize this and we need to act, and that is my point here this evening. So while adverting to the fact, and I'll circle back to it when we come to the practical part, that at root what is needed is a deep interior conversion, nonetheless, the focus of my presentation to you is on considering the role of the technology itself and how we have to be prepared to think clearly about that and reckon with that as integral to the problem that we're talking about. Let's go a little then deeper into the problem at hand. I'm just going to point to a couple of different aspects to it and then turn to the part, part two, the philosophical analysis. Personal presence. I like to, and you'll, and you'll hear me mention this again and again, kind of presence versus absence, presence versus absence. The more clearly we understand what human life can and should be, the more we'll be in a position to understand what is wrong now. So let's note an overall principle here. Life is about relationship. Life is about relationship. Relationship, most of all, consists in living together, which most of all means being present to one another. So I'm suggesting for starters here at the absolute center of truly human life is the ability to be, and I'll say, I'll throw in the word, you didn't have to throw this word in the past, physically present to one another, to live in relationship as a human being, is especially lived out in being bodily present, not just in body, but then how are we in a deep, rich, and full way present to one another? I'd like to quote to you the 15th chapter, the 15th verse of that chapter in the Gospel of St. John. 
No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. I have lectured much on friendship. I love the point of friendship. If we're made for relationship, the relationship I'd say most of all that we're made for is to live in friendships of different kinds. I always love the central insight of Aristotle into what is at the center of friendship. Conversation. Conversation as the fundamental way that human beings are present to one another and are able to live out a friendship. They live in, especially, conversation. I tease my students then when I read them the verse that I just read to you from the Gospel of St. John and say, I think that our Lord had the same understanding of friendship that Aristotle did. For note how he just put it at this key moment saying that he calls us friends. The servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. There's this deep sense here of even a conversation between us and our Lord. He has shared his inmost thoughts that the father has shared with him, he has shared with us. So I just begin here. This is at the foundation of our understanding of who we are. We are made for presence. We are made for relationship, ultimately with God himself. But then this is lived out in a special way with other human beings. So at the heart of friendship then is this act called conversation. Here what I'd like to do is now make reference to a book that I am going to refer to several times. You will note if you've already started to look at the handout that there are a number of quotations from this book in the handout. Let me note, I haven't, and this is a rather recent addition to my own library. I have not read the whole thing. I'm not saying that I endorse everything that is in this book, but I have found it profoundly moving and based upon what I've read, particularly just in the first 50 pages, it was astounding. And it is called Reclaiming Conversation, The Power of Talk in a Digital Age by a Sherry Turkle, who is a professor of social science at MIT, and she's also a licensed clinical psychologist. I don't, have, I don't know whether she has any particular religious affiliation. She seems to be speaking primarily as a psychologist and an educator. And the thesis of the book is that it all turns on conversation. So let's take a look at a couple of quotations here. I numbered the, all the quotations in the handout. I'm going to read to you quotation number six, which is the first under where I've started to give her quotations. Face-to-face -face conversation is the most human and humanizing thing we do. I, I, I find that a brilliant statement. Face-to-face -face conversation is the most human and humanizing thing we do. Fully present to one another, we learn to listen. It's where we develop the capacity for empathy. It's where we experience the joy of being heard, of being understood. And conversation advances self-reflection. 
the conversations with ourselves that are the cornerstone of early development and continue through life. I'm going to jump down to, to number nine. Conversation is on the path toward the experience of intimacy, community, and communion. Reclaiming conversation is a step toward reclaiming our most fundamental human values. The fundamental thesis of her book, ladies and gentlemen, is that the habits of our technology are hindering us in the very fundamental aspect of our humanity in as much as we are losing the ability to have real conversations. Now, this, it, 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 it's, it's, it might seem easy to kind of dismiss that. Oh, I talk to people all the time. This is where we have, to, we have to focus and bear in mind this conversation and then this conversation. Or we might say there's talking and then there's the conversation of friends or the conversation of parents to children or the conversation of colleagues. Conversation as the key humanizing activity and her, her fundamental thesis here is the technology and it shows up most clearly in the children. Well, I can't, can't make the whole case, but I'm going to just point to one particular thing here. In the first quotation there, she says it's where we develop the capacity for empathy. She says it's one of the most dramatic and scary things that now the studies are showing about not just young children, but moving into teenagers. As a whole, the generation has a quickly diminishing ability to empathize with, to feel with, other people. And that's part of the reason that there more and more are kind of horrendous things that they do. And they interview them afterwards and they're realizing it's just this fundamental disconnect. They haven't learned how to empathize with another person where you're able to enter into how, what someone else might be experiencing. And so they're fundamentally handicapped on the most foundational human level. And we have to ask ourselves why. Well, I'm, gonna, I, I'm not going to be able to make her whole case, but of course, fundamentally, the assertion is that the technologies are replacing the kind of conversation in human presence that would have been providing for precisely that kind of humanizing formation. So that's my quick thought for you on presence. We are losing the contexts and the habits of being present to one another, especially with rich conversation. Another quick area, we have a growing inability to be alone, to have silence, and to have interior conversation. I'm going to read you a quotation that's not on your handout from St. Thomas Aquinas. And here he's making a very fascinating case. This is in his treatment of friendship, and he's making the argument that we are able to stand in as good a relationship to other people and friendship as we are able to first exercise towards ourself. And this is what he says. The virtuous man wishes most of all to converse with himself by turning to his soul and meditating alone. He does this with pleasure. I'll read that to you again. The virtuous man wishes most of all, most of all that kind of for starters, to converse with himself 
by turning to his own soul and meditating alone. He does this with pleasure. This is in the context of St. Thomas arguing, this is precisely the kind of person that will be able to live in the only kind of friendship that actually ultimately is the communion that overcomes our own loneliness. He's in no way implying that the virtuous man is sufficient unto himself or only wants to be alone, but there is first of all this ability and even pleasure in being able to turn inwardly and be with himself. A couple other aspects of this problem. We constantly experience ourselves as both available to others and on display. Think of how we think of our life often, I know this applies more to young people, more and more of these things aren't just applying to young people. We think of our life in terms of posting videos or images of our life, or even just how would we explain what is going on in us online. Again, this is, this is a very, very broad, broad phenomenon now. These two points here actually remove the true center of our lives. Consider how important this is. Who is the experienced or felt audience for our life? What is the audience looking for? What does the audience that we live in the presence of actually value? Part of the whole, and, and, and again, I'm just choosing little things. Part of this problem of our living in the presence of that audience that we make our life exposed to is that we start to see our lives through the eyes of that audience. And by and large, what that audience is looking for is not pointing us towards what we should be looking for or valuing in our own lives. The audience of life, particularly in view of these recent technological habits that our society has broadly formed, the audience of life has changed. It's omnipresent. It's crushingly banal. It changes how we look at who we are. This strikes at our variability to understand ourselves, to have the proper self-image, and stand in right relationship to other people. I want to give a special note here and just taking a quick tour through the problem. I'm sorry this is kind of painful and ugly. There's, there's, there, there's, there, there's light here, but I think we just have to be honest in seeing a few of these various aspects. I want to give a special attention to the beleaguered household. Current practice has so much emptied the household of its life. I, I love to think of Aristotle's understanding of the household where he said the household is where human beings live daily life with those that they are closest to in life. Household is where you live life daily with the people that are most important in your life. In any case, that's what a household was fundamentally for almost all of history until rather recently, where more and more now the household has been emptied of that. The household tends to just be a place that we, well, maybe we eat together, maybe not. We do some entertainment, we sleep, 
it's fascinating to ask, what else goes on in our household anymore anyway? The household is being emptied. There are all these centrifugal forces in the household that are leaving it exposed and move it from its ability to be a place where we are at home. How much does technology have to do with that? The remaining corners of the household where people might be together in richer ways are now themselves laid bare by the technologies that separate the people here by connecting these people to things that are not here. And so the last little vestiges of the household where we might have been present together, we live in absence as opposed to presence from one another. All right, now, a deeper view now in view of Pope Francis. Presenting Pope Francis's uh, philosophy here is going to be the, the key philosophical part. I'm going to keep this kind of brief. This is going to be, this is going to be a little bit difficult. We'll do this as, as straightforwardly as I can, and then, and then we'll jump out again to the practical implications. Right, but the key is, I was so thrilled, I found it so nourishing and exciting to see Pope Francis in Laudato Si, his, his encyclical on the environment, reflecting on the problem, one aspect, one key aspect of the problem we face by referring to the technocratic paradigm in which we live. So I'm going, to do, I'm going to make a little effort here to try to use his understanding of that to help us understand a little better the, the deeper roots of what's going on with the whole kind of technology thing. Here's the fundamental reasoning. There is an internal logic to, you might say, a, a reasoning that is implied in, an internal logic to technology, taking technology as such. Technology as technology, it's not going to say that it's evil, but technology as such, he says, tends toward power and control. Let me give you a couple quotations that are not in your handout. This is from paragraph 108 of Laudato Si. Technology tends to absorb everything into its ironclad, ironclad logic, and those who are surrounded with technology Quote, know full well that it moves forward in the final analysis neither for profit nor for the well-being of the human race. And then in the most radical sense of the term, power is its motive, a lordship overall. End quote. Now here's, has, here's a quick one from section 106. This paradigm exalts the concept of a subject who, using logical and rational procedures progressively approaches and gains control over an external object. Now, this is, this, this, this is, this is rather abstract. I'm going to try to put a little bit of flesh on it. This point is difficult to grasp, and it's also difficult to articulate. It's perhaps even more difficult to apply to our daily lives. But such difficulties do not excuse us from attempting to do so. It seems that Francis' key move is to connect the use of technology and an assertion of power. This, is po this point is not that every use of technology is simply an assertion of power, but technology as such is about power. Thus, when not intentionally integrated into the right order of human ends, 
the use of technology will simply tend, according to its own internal logic, toward the domination of something. When Francis refers to the technological paradigm as problematic, he is not asserting that technology is intrinsically disordered. What is disordered is when the internal logic of technology is the logic that governs our use of technology. Put otherwise, when the use of technology is not governed by a clear conception and intention of the true human good, then that use will tend towards disorder. That explains, I think, much of how technology has had such a profoundly negative influence on society in the last X number of years. Again, when the use of technology is not governed by a clear conception and intention of the true human good, such as understanding that we are made for relationship and presence, then the use of technology will tend towards disorder. It will tend toward the sheer exercise of power in whatever domain it is utilized. The technological paradigm, then, is Pope Francis's name for the problem that having lost insights into the true human good and understanding what human life is really about, modern man's use of technology tends to separate us from key aspects of our own happiness, even while we think that it is making progress in moving us towards better happiness. The bottom line might be put this way. There is an internal logic to technology, again, namely that it tends towards domination or control of something. Therefore, using it, using that vast array of technologies, tends to make us think and act along certain lines, such as, I'm in control. Human ingenuity can solve any problem. I can and should work indefinitely to make my life more convenient more pleasurable, and have less work. We might put it this way. The dominance of technology in the modern world, ladies and gentlemen, is training us to ask certain questions and to answer them in certain ways. When I have a problem, I tend to think, what technology might solve this problem for me? Even when I have some type of discomfort, what technology might make it go away? More generally, here's a way that we have been trained to think. Note how we so often think this way, ladies and gentlemen. Soon, we'll be able to X. Whatever X is. We say soon, they'll advance technology so we'll be able to X. And then the immediate assumption is, once we're able to do that, of course, then we will because it's better to be able to do things that right now we're not able to do. It's astounding, ultimately, how subversive this logic is, but so absolutely common. It's this myth of progress, of if we can use our ingenuity to do this, then surely we should. In any age, the development in use of technology should be carefully analyzed in view of a rich and nuanced understanding of the good human life. 
But the simple fact of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, is that this has not been done in any significant way in Western civilization for a very, very long time. The dominant forces in Western civilization have pushed forward with progress in technology as though that is good in itself. It has become the dominant way of think, thinking, and I present for your consideration Pope Francis having a profound insight here that we all, in various ways, tend to think in these terms, even if not the most crass terms. We need to learn to stop and to ask the right questions. Right now, society is constantly pressuring us and indeed at times almost requiring us to follow along with that internal logic of, well, this is what's coming next. We, we might as well go ahead and get ready for that. We tend to see this as inevitable, and indeed, we often are even trapped into seeing it as progress. But most of the time, or in any case, often, it's not. Let's take a quick peek at the second quotation on your handout from Pope Francis. This one particularly struck me. Again, this is Laudato Si in the context of talking about the technocratic paradigm, which is about to wrap up and move to the practical. We have to accept that technological products are not neutral. I, I, I'm very glad he wrote that line. So often people say, well, the technology in itself is neutral. Pope Francis just said, it's not neutral. It doesn't mean it's intrinsically evil, but he's saying it's not neutral. In what sense is it not neutral? He goes on. For they create a framework which ends up conditioning lifestyles. I, I just, there it is, ladies and gentlemen. When I read that line, I thought, bam, thank you. He's nailed it. This is what we've not seen. The technological products are not neutral. They create a framework which ends up conditioning lifestyles. Now, so I'm, going to be, I'm a little bit bold right here, ladies and gentlemen. It's a very simple and the most obvious example. If we apply that, a smartphone is not neutral. Why is it not neutral? Because it conditions us to live in certain ways. And those ways are often deleterious to the richness and fullness of our life. No, that was not an argument that it's morally evil, but it is an argument that we have to see having a technology, having an entertainment center in our living room is not neutral. It conditions us to live in a certain way. Now, if someone wants to make an argument that that's, that it's, that that's positive, then one can make that argument. But in any case, it's not neutral because it is conditioning us to live in a specific kind of way, in shaping social possibilities. So I complete the quotation. De decisions which may seem purely instrumental are in reality decisions about the kind of society we want to build. I just think this is an extremely powerful quotation. Decisions about what technologies we're going to use are decisions about what kind of society we're going to have. 
Decisions about what technology we're going to have in the home are decisions about what kind of life is going to go on in that household. Decisions about what technologies I will have in my office, I will have on my person, are decisions that are formative of important aspects of my life. I'd like to give a couple quick examples then of what question might we ask, and after that then I'm going to turn to some more specific suggestions. What questions might, as a civilization, we have been asking? Maybe not, we're not going to ask these anytime soon as a civilization, but as a subculture, as a sub-community, as in any case, in your household or with your friends. Here are some questions that we can start to ask. Will this particular technology, whatever it is, or this particular use of that technology enhance my relationships? Will it enhance my ability to be present to, to grow in friendship with the most important people in my life? Will it be a factor to help me grow in virtue, in self-control, in courage, in magnanimity? Will this technology that I'm going to use in my work, we're not particularly going to go into the direction of, of various kinds of human labors, but here's a great question. Would it have been asked a very long time ago, will these various advances in technology make human labor more human, or will it actually dehumanize that very labor? This question needed to be asked, and it wasn't. And that's part of where, why we are where we are. Okay, some practical steps. Fundamental solution, Pope Francis refers to this in the, in the encyclical, and we, need to, and we need to note it. Profound interior conversion is his phrase. Profound interior conversion is, of course, the fundamental solution to this problem. Nothing less will empower us to be able to address this serious situation than a profound interior conversion. But that alone, ladies and gentlemen, is not enough. And that is the point of my lecture here this evening. My lecture is not focused on that profound interior conversion. That's a beautiful and extremely important point that is not what we're focusing on here. We're taking that for granted. The interior conversion, we might call it a conversion toward relationship a conversion towards presence, a conversion towards friendship, a conversion towards virtue, a conversion towards the interior life. That must take concrete form in changing how we use technology. That's my main assertion to you. The deep interior conversion needs, as a necessary complement to it, a reflective insightful, penetrating consideration of the things that we're talking about, yielding a concrete plan of how what we do in the exterior forum can aid and bear out that interior conversion. So we might put it this way, put it very simply. The conversion is put first things first, but then see the connection between putting first things first and what that means for how I see technology and how I use technology. All right, so 
I've divided my practical suggestions, ladies and gentlemen, into a few what I'll call negative steps. Negative doesn't mean negative in the sense of not having good results, but negative in the sense of more having to say no. Because I think it's only realistic that we recognize that this program is going to begin with saying a no, but the saying of no is ultimately about the saying of a yes, but I'm going to begin with the saying of no. The only way we're going to be able to do this, particularly given where we are now, is to enter into it with an understanding of this is going to hurt. This is going to take a change. This is going to take in a, a, a dramatic discipline. This is going to take a dramatic restraint because technology is easy, it's fun, it's tintillating, it, it, it appeals to us on, in so many ways. This is why, ladies and gentlemen, we all fall into using it in ways where we're kicking ourselves as we're doing it. Why am I watching this YouTube video right now? Why am I watching this goat walk on a tightrope? <laughs> because someone shared it and thought it was funny. Right? I'm sharing, we're in this together. It's understandable that we're going to find it difficult. And I'm, I'm, I'm referring to a silly and banal. There's obviously more difficult things that we're going to have to deal with here. So my overall suggestion, it's going to take a holistic approach. Whatever we do, we're going to have to have a very specific plan. All right, let, here are a couple examples, a couple suggestions, because here's the, th the thing. It's going to have to be individualized. It's going to have to be us looking at our lives and saying, how can we make this possible here? We're all in slightly different situations. There's no one size fits all. There's not going to be, okay, given all this, then just take all these devices right here and just drop them in this trash can, and now we've solved this problem. And that's not necessarily what would have been best in any case. But in any case, it's normally not going to be possible. Two, two things we can do on the negative front. Physical no technology zones and temporal no technology zones. These are two main things that we can look at very practically in our day. Where can we find certain spaces, certain actual places where we are going to say, and we're going to hold ourselves to it, and then others to the extent that we possibly can. Again, there's going to have to be buy-in. I'm not talking about forcing and hitting other people over the head, but we're, we're, we're trying to build consensus. Can we find friends who have buy-in with us? All right, so here it is. So for instance, maybe, maybe it's our living room. The living room, maybe we're going to say, is simply a no technology zone. When we go into the living room, we're not going to have, we're not going to have a computer in there. We're not going to have a smartphone in there. There's lots of different ways that people found to do this. You put a basket at the entry to the room, and you have people drop their things in there, and then they go into the room. Ladies and gentlemen, we have to talk about details like this. It has to be done in some way like that. Again, it, it, so much is at stake. Where are going to be the physical places for presence, for having face-to-face -face bodily conversation that is uninterrupted? I, we don't, there, there's so many quotations here I'd, I'd love to be able to, to peek at. One of, the, one, one of the quotations here from Sherry Turkle, so I just um, set it aside here, is... Quick look at number seven and number eight. We say we turn to our phones when we're bored. 
And we often find ourselves bored because we become accustomed to a constant feed of connection, information, and entertainment. We are forever elsewhere. Okay, number eight. Even a silent phone, and this is what the studies have shown, even a silent phone inhibits conversations that matter. The very sight of a phone on the landscape leaves us feeling less connected to each other, less invested in each other. The, the studies have shown, and one could, one could argue with it, if someone knows that there is a phone here, my phone, your phone, that could at any moment get a text, could at any moment get a call, any moment someone could say, you know, let's check that out and let's look it up, boom, and someone's somewhere else in a very maybe well-intentioned way, but all of a sudden you're someplace else. We're not really with one another anymore. That lowers the quality of the human contact right there, boom. One might argue against it. Seems to me experience is bearing this out. And then here again you have the professional saying, this is what we're finding. So the importance then of our being savvy, our being, being more savvy than others are in, because we have such a clear sense of what is so important that we defend. So those spaces that we're going to set up for freedom. And then likewise times. Here's an, here's an idea that was suggested to me and I found it very much worth considering. The Sabbath technology free zone. What about if Sunday or some part of Sunday? Just, just think about how this might fit. The Lord's Day, for the sake of a certain rest. Of course, the Lord's Day rest is a very rich kind of rest. It's a rest that's particularly a resting together in a way of being with. Are we willing to say the entire Sunday or some large chunk of Sunday, we are going to absolutely set all those things aside? No, no maybe not absolutely. Maybe it's going to be certain ones. I can't tell you exactly which to do. That's why this thing is so, it's so tricky. It's so easy to, when we start to throw out these particular suggestions. Well, okay, that one doesn't really fit for me. That one doesn't really fit for me. I want to be a little bit in your face. I'm going to suggest to you, you've got to find one that fits for you. What about, and, and this is something I've talked about with friends and colleagues, what about, what about the problem of, of my job requires now that I be constantly on call? If my boss, even in the evening, had, had, had other husbands of young children say this, if I get a text in the evening from my boss and I don't respond right away, I've got a problem. That's, that's a real issue. I'm not suggesting here that you do something that's going to threaten your job. But let me just, again, be very practical with you. Maybe some of you all in the room are actually the boss. Right? Well, let's think, let's, let's, think about, let's think about the work environment. Do you have in your control to make this more human? Ladies and gentlemen, maybe, you won't, maybe it will actually threaten your business in some way. I know it's easy for me to stand here before you and say it, but I'm going to say it anyway. If there was any truth to the opening picture that I painted, then we've got to be willing to ask these questions. Are you willing to have your business be less successful? Are you willing, even as an employee, to be the one that's not willing to be on call all the time? Because if you're on call all the time, you don't need me to tell you your children know it. And on call for them out there is not on call for them here. And they feel it. 
And we parents, we, it's so easy for us to justify, well, I, I, I have to such and such. Do we have to such and such? Maybe you do, and maybe only you know, and I'm not telling you whether you do or don't have to. Is it, if this is what you have to do, then it's what you have to do. But if it's not what you have to do, how are we going to look at that? I mean, particularly speaking to the parents. God knows your time with your children, it goes by quickly. And certain of those things you will never get back. And your absence, often connected with these technological things, is part of this thing. And it's part of what we're patterning for them. One of the fascinating things in this book by Sherry Turkle is she talks about how you know, parents are annoyed when their young children are asking for smartphones. And she says, look at, look at what you've patterned for them. What else are they going to ask for? Because to them, that's how they make it. Right? That, that's how they're going to be like you. They're going to be connected now. This is tough stuff. I'm not telling you there's any easy answer to it, but we've got to reckon with it. And then children younger and younger are having smartphones, and you don't need to tell me what often happens. So we're, we're going to have to come up with plans working together in a common sense way. How can we restrict? How can we come up with that, that plan? But again, the negative isn't going to be it. I'm going to turn towards the positive. We're going to have to restore fundamental human activities and practices that more and more are being threatened. I've got to read you one of my favorite quotations here. This right here is quotation number four. Quotation number four. This book was written, ladies and gentlemen, in 1930. This was by a gentleman who was part of a movement. They were called Southern Agrarians. And, and, and listen, listen, to what, listen to what Andrew Lytle says. This conflict is between the unnatural progeny of inventive genius and men. He's talking about all sorts of technological advances in 1930. It is a war to the death between technology and the ordinary functions of living. That's an extremely strong line. Some people will accuse me in following Andrew Lytle of, 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 of going too far. I find his insight prophetic and very much to the point. What he calls the ordinary functions of human life. The rights to these human functions, he says, are the natural rights of man. And they are threatened now in the 20th, not in the 18th century, for the first time. Unless man asserts and defends them, what's the them, quote, the ordinary functions of life, then he is doomed, to use a chemical analogy, to hop about like sodium on water, burning up his own energy. You know what he's talking about, the ordinary functions of life? He's talking about things like a family sitting around in the evening and telling stories of grandparents telling their grandchildren where they've come from and who they are. He's talking about just sitting around the fire and singing songs. He's talking about learning fundamental human things, fundamental human things with their hands, fundamental tasks of the home arts, 
that were being replaced and have been replaced and are so far gone almost no one can do them anymore. And he's calling those the ordinary functions of human life that he calls the rights of human beings. And he sought his time. If you just let the technologies that replace all those things or push them out, if you let them come in and you don't ask the hard questions and do something about it now, you will lose your birthright to the most fundamental kinds of activities that have always made human beings be human. So we have to do something to cultivate them. You can't just clear a space for it. This is the dramatic thing. Just picture, picture taking a group of young people and saying, okay, folks, we're going to set our, our phones aside for a moment. Now we're going to do something. And picture them kind of innocently looking there like, okay, what? What are we going to do now? If they haven't established certain habits, you start to tell them a story, and two minutes into it, they're not listening anymore. Now what do you do? They're sure they're getting a text somewhere right now. Uh, you, don't, you don't need me to be, to, to be beating you over the head with it. But how are we going to... It's going to be baby steps. It's going to be starting small. It's going to be starting with ourselves. We need to rebuild our interior life. We need to rebuild our ability to be silent. We need to rebuild our ability to be alone with ourselves and to reflect on things and to enjoy them and to enjoy simply being present and starting those awkward conversations with teenagers or with whomever to start to form the ability to do it again, whether it's storytelling or singing out loud, or reading out loud together, or group discussion, or going on that camping trip. The amazing thing is, Sherry Turkle refers to this, it's still the case. You can, you can reverse it. The, 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 what they find when they take these young kids on, 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 on an outback kind of camping trip, and they don't bring their technology, many of them, by like the second day, are saying things like, it's amazing how much there is to talk about. Simple things like that. I never knew that you could hear so much at nighttime if you're outside. I mean, it's, it's almost pathetic to hear them saying such things. But they start, because they're still human, and they still want those things, they've got to be shown them, and that's what we have to do, and we have to lead by example. So, a couple other quick suggestions, and I'm done. Living in the natural world. I'm going to give you a quotation. This isn't on, on, on the handout from John Paul II. Pope Francis actually quotes these two in Laudato Si. Just let these two quick sentences flow over you. God has written a precious book whose letters are the multitude of created things present in the universe. Another one. This contemplation of creation allows us to discover in each thing a teaching which God wishes to hand on to us since for the believer, to contemplate creation is to hear a message, to listen to a paradoxical and silent voice. One more. Alongside Revelation properly so-called, this is all St. John Paul II. Along Revelation properly so-called, containing sacred, sacred scripture, there's a divine manifestation in the blaze of the sun and the fall of the night. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope it's not belaboring the points to say, I've seen it with my own eyes. Whole generations at this point don't know what's going on in the natural world. 
They don't know the name of a single tree in their own backyard. They couldn't name a bird if their life depended upon it. They, they can't tell you anything about the cycle of the moon. You could look all these things up on the internet and they know nothing of the natural world. God's first book to tell us who we are and who he is. We've been separated from it. We too need to get reconnected to the message that God is telling us, sharing with us. I'm convinced that is going to be a big part on the positive side of how we reconnect ourselves to all the things we've been disconnected to. And finally, I'd just like to make the recommendation and I'm going back up or back to the fundamental Eucharistic adoration. Talk about silence. Talk about connectedness. Talk about presence. Talk about something that just doesn't fit with technological intervention. To me, it, it's, it's instructive. The, the bing of a text in Eucharistic adoration is just utterly out of place. How can we learn then there to go back to the source to rediscover our own humanity in adoration of our Lord? And a final point from a spiritual master about those of us who are not in the, you know, in the religious life, you might say that your whole life is either in such prayer or is in approximately getting ready to go back to the prayer. Those of us who are not in the religious life, our prayer is not able to be as extensive but we still could see everything we do as at least a remote preparation for being in adoration. This might be a nice angle through which to consider how are we going to reckon with the technology in our lives. And we have to be realistic and we're going to have to deal with many difficult situations there. But how can we make our whole life be more of a at least remote preparation to be in adoration? Thanks for your attention. Thank you, Dr. Cutterback. That was a great talk. Very good. Um, it reminds me of uh, something Monsignor Pope said at one of our talks here for the Institute. He said that cultural movements are made in rooms such as this. Cultural movements are made in rooms such as this. So, you know, I'm convicted. Mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. Um, and I dare say many of you were probably convicted by what uh, Dr. Cutterback has told us tonight, and let the conversation continue. Don't let it stop here in this room. Go out and talk to your coworkers. Tell them about this great talk you heard tonight, and, and brainstorm with what Dr. Cutterback has given us to reclaim the culture from this enslavement to technology and, and freedom for Christ. So, you know, this is your homework, if, if I may be permitted to uh, give you homework. Go out. Change the culture. It starts with you. It starts here now. All right. So for question and answer, who's first? Doctor, you've pointed out very clearly that unconscious use of technology causes a great many problems. But unconscious use of technology 
also allows us to minister to our fellow human beings in trouble. It does. There wasn't a question mark at the end, but I'm going to put the question mark in, my, in myself by saying, what do you think, Dr. Kederbach? Okay. So, so that's a question. All right. Um, as you might know, I have a blog. I, very quickly, I will tell you, um, I have wrestled with these things for many years. And um, there came a point where, speaking to former students of mine, many of the uh, women of which are young mothers, uh, they said, it's just the way things are, that where we find things to read is online. And if you have something you, you want to share with us, we just really appreciate that it be there. And that was, that, was, that was the first inspiration as to why I, I, I went on um, and, and started the blog, Bacon from Acorns, and, and I, I, which I want to mention, by the way. I, I really want to ultimately have resources on there to the directly give practical helps, particularly as regards to these things we're talking about. I'm actually looking for help in trying to figure out how to do that. I'd love to have a site dedicated to that simply that would be something like disconnect in order to connect to help people to figure out how to deal with these things. But of course, they're still going to be on, online. And so we can minister. And so, so, so the point here is not to, to say no. It's, it, it's to be savvy. It's to, it's to learn how to use the things well in their appropriate context. And then to, to avoid, I mean, things as simple as, my, my wife just challenged me the other day, and this simply, I mean, here I am up here talking as though I've, I've, I've got this figured out. Just the other day, my wife said to me, John, do you really need to check your email ever while you are in this house? <laughs> it's a great question, because I'm at the office all day long, and, and, I'm, and I, I, my, my emails in a day are, are, are literally in the, this isn't surprising, you know, 60, 70. I mean, in my profession, there's just, there's just no such thing as not, right? And so I, I already had to learn from the, from the people that write the books on this. You've got to have it so that it doesn't ding when they come in and only go in several times and not have a constant feed of it. Otherwise, it's catastrophic just from an attention viewpoint. And I, and I realized, yeah, I'm, I'm patterning for my own children. Well, daddy, daddy has to, you know, just check the email at least once or twice. And I, and I normally did. There's so many things that are constantly coming in. I just thought it was a good management of time. But I realized, no, okay, why don't I do this? Or if, I, if it's an absolute emergency, maybe one time after the children go to bed. We have to come up with these things ourselves. But it's so easy when you go in there all of a sudden to start doing other things. And so this is what I'm just saying. It's, it's about discipline. It's about thinking clearly. We're going to be doing it, and we want to use it well, and we're going to reach people that otherwise we wouldn't have reached. That doesn't change the genuine challenge of what this is. In a sense, it makes it all the more challenging. Because I agree, there's certain people that are only going to be reached there. All the more, for their sake, our sake, everybody's sake, we've got to figure out practically what we're going to do. Dr. Cutterback, how fundamentally is this different than Socrates saying, well, the printed word is going to ruin somebody's ability to keep ideas memorized? Well, well um, it, it's, it's different. And I, I, I very good question. I, I, I'd put it this way. It, there is no doubt that um, the, the move to writing did, um, we, you could say there were certain things that were lost. The, the, the kind of the bard culture 
and the kind of the, the men who were able to just give whole epic histories of their people and people could remember that before the written word. That was something that is very great. There, I think, nonetheless, a, a, a reasonable, rational consideration of the whole thing can say, I think a good argument can be made, a net gain by looking at writing. This, in this case, now here I'm going to a, a different point, but I think it, 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 well, not a different, I mean, I'm making a point, your good questions made me make a point that I didn't. I, I think here we are talking about not a net gain, we're talking about a, a gross overusage. We're talking about what the, the goods that come of it actually kind of end up turning to dust. And, and I, I made kind of an oblique reference, though not so oblique, when I said, interestingly, we constantly talk about how all the information is right there on the in internet, and more and more people's geography is absolutely horrible. Our sense of place is absolutely horrible. Our sense of history is absolutely horrible. And why? I mean, tell, tell me what. I mean, so, so here, I mean, a lot of it is just experience is showing us we are losing significantly. So it's, so it's not, it's not, there are, this is where we have the principles in Western civilization where we can look and say there were things worth being concerned about even with writing coming. It wasn't an absolutely obvious, oh, sure, of course it's better. There was actually something lost. But I think it ends up, it in fact, is better. And we had the ability to see that. But even there, you might want to do certain things to counteract what is lost. And so it, it, it's, it's part of the same process. We need to be aware of these things. It's just now, with what the Pope's referring to is, we just are absolutely catapulting forward with, 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 you know, with no real consideration of the dramatic losses. And in that way, I think it is significantly different. We have a question coming in from online. Uh, Todd from Buffalo writes, uh, I'm a software engineer who works remotely from the rest of my team on developing tech technical solutions 40 hours a week. What would you say are some guidelines for those of us who are strapped to technology in our career? Is a career immersed in technology inherently shaped by something that is less than human or against humanity? That was two questions, but I think they were well, important great, ones. Great, great question. Um, Look, um, the world, we, we have to play with the hand that we've been dealt. There's all kinds of things. I was talking to someone at, at, at dinner. I mean, there's all kinds of information, technology, and so forth that just is going to have, there have to be people that are, that are professionals in this. So I, I do not think that your profession is, is, is tied to the necessarily subhuman. Your profession is tied to something, particularly given the technocratic paradigm today, where we are marching forward in the use of technology without having the principles to very carefully examine it and properly question each step of the way. That's the big problem. And so I'd say if you're going to be in the, in the profession, and many, many of us obviously in varying degrees are going to be, it's going to be about the, the difficult job of taking, I hope I provided in the, in the lecture, some principles of how we can be constantly examining and reducing the negative consequences while recognizing we still have to work with these things. But we, 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 I think often we do slip, we, we slip into just thinking, well, I necessarily then have to do this, just I share my own. I thought, well, I have to be checking my email at home. It's a very simple thing. And I've now decided I'm not going to check my email at home anymore. I'm at the office eight, eight hours a day. That's plenty of time to do the email then. So I'm not going to do any in my house. And I'm so happy that my wife 
pointed it out to me. So little things like that we're just ready to do each in his own, in his own way. We have another one from online. Lisa from Charlotte asks, how would you start the check in your phone before you enter the room conversation with family members who rely so heavily on smartphones? Uh, uh, great, great question. Um, I, very carefully. <laughs> and humbly and prayerfully. N nobody wants a, a holier than thou. I've given up my smartphone, you know, why, why, why haven't you? Don't you realize how that's, I mean, because the thing is we do, particularly when there's a kind of unconscious addiction, we feel uh, our identity is tied up in there and people can feel very threatened. We need, we need to realize we're all in this together. We have to approach it very humbly. And there might be certain people that, that you're not immediately able to bring it up with. But I mean, one, one thing I, I, I just suggest, taking a kind of humble can I share with you something I have found in my own life that um, I think might make a difference? And, I, and so I, I, I wanted to share it with you. If, if you think that that, that approach is, is much less threatening than others. So again, be savvy, be prudent, be prayerful, be humble. Some people you'll be able to do it with and others you won't. We have many letters from Washington, Lincoln, and so on. Are there any emails from these VIPs that are going to be saved? Well, that's a, that, that's, that's a reasonable question. And of course, your question points to, points to, to a loss of, of, of carefulness about the words and how we use words. And I'm, I'm just going to respond by saying okay, another thing we can resolve to do ourselves, be men and women who choose our words carefully. It, 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 I mean, more, more and more, again, the habits you find yourself dragged into. I, I, I've been trying to resist the one of, of writing emails where you don't begin it with dear so-and-so. I, 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 I'm just kind of making it a personal thing of where I just want to, this is still from me to you. I'm going to put your name at the beginning and not shoot an email back that says, okay. Although I completely understand, we're all very busy and understand why, why it does that. But, but again, we, we realize this is, you, you're, you're more and more swept into where we establish habits that will actually make our communication degenerate. You don't need me to tell you that. But, but are we taking steps? Are we being realistic and saying, what are we doing to stop it? While you've been speaking, I've been relying on the technology because I've been holding a six and a half week old baby who's been communicating with me with his face, his eyes, his smiles, his wiggles. And what I take away as I'm listening, and I want to make sure I understand the essence of your whole talk tonight, is the value of the nonverbal communications in building bonds. Is that true? I apologize. I'm not quite following. Just help, help me. Okay. You were using technology, we're on here, he's got an iPad, we're, we're interconnected around the United States. Right. And as we're talking, I'm listening and taking everything in that you're saying. Meanwhile, I have a six and a half week old baby in my arms here, communicating with me face to face with his, who's his Googles, his eyes, Right. Another name for Google. Uh, different, you know, the cooing, the, the wiggling, the nonverbal communication is powerful and bonding. And I yes. think if I can put the wrapper around it and correct me if I'm wrong, 
your point is, is, is that we need that nonverbal communication. And when, I guess, am I right in what your wife was saying to you about, do you have to check your email tonight? Her point was the nonverbal communication of not doing that is more powerful than anything. That's your Okay, you have, you have a great, I mean, I'm, I'm going to try, try my best here. This, this, this is very important. There's key nonverbal, but also I'm also putting a premium on verbal, but verbal particularly in connection with nonverbal, which is what face-to-face -face is. For face-to-face -face communication is verbal, but also involves many things that are not verbal. Our, our being together in, in body. And so I, I like very much the theme of Sherry Turkle's book, Reclaiming Conversation. Let me tell you very, very quickly. She said, I am finding in the therapies that she's doing that using conversation rebuilds fundamental human connections that have been lost. So we can, re we can reclaim conversation. It's, it ultimately has a very positive message. It's going to take some very serious saying no to this and discipline about this. So central to my message is we need to refocus on the fundamental ways human beings are present to one another. Verbal communication is absolutely essential, but it's not simply words that, for instance, could have been thrown in, in an email. It's, it's verbal and nonverbal. It's real human presence together, and that is what we have to protect. If we lose that, we are losing our humanity. Last question comes from Barbara online from Washington. If this trend goes unchecked, where will we likely end up? All right. I, I, I'm glad someone has said that. And, and, and let me put this. God only knows. <laughs> but, but honestly, this, this is important. That's not our problem. W you and I need to focus on what we can do. It's so easy in this whole thing to turn and start to, 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 uh, to wring our hands. Well, what are we going to do if they such and such? And, you know, and, the, and the government is doing research into this and the big businesses want to do it. I mean, sure. I mean, I could have, uh, one of my old ICC friends was just telling me some things that, he's that the military is talking about. I, I mean, it's, it's horrendous. We live in a dark time. In, in a serious way, I say, that's God's problem in the sense of we, we put that in his hands. There's much that is in our power to do. That's where our focus should be. I, I, I honestly don't think we should worry about, I mean, a reasonable question, I understand, but as a word of encouragement, let's put that in God's hands. Let's think about what we're going to do today to live better with our loved ones, our family, and our friends, and not constantly be, be I know I started out talking about, you know, well, kids are doing this, and those people, and those people. That's part of understanding the problem. But what, we have something in our power. By the grace of God, let's do it. Thank you, Dr. Thank Carter, you. back. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.